Hello and welcome to the podcast for the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we've been talking about environmental issues. This week we're talking about COP26, the next global climate conference. With me to discuss that this week is Peter Betts, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and for 10 years Director of International Climate and Energy, six years of which he was lead negotiator for the EU in international climate talks, including at the Paris Climate Conference. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Gavin. It's a great pleasure to be here. Can we start by setting COP26 in context? What is it supposed to achieve and how does it build on previous climate change agreements? So COP26 is very different from, say, the big Paris COP in 2015. The big Paris COP was, was really about negotiating a text. It's, it's the, the, the meeting which agreed the, the Paris Agreement. Alongside that Paris Agreement were country commitments, which are known as nationally determined contributions in the jargon. And these were significant. They were commitments from just about every major country in the world. But we all knew at the time that they weren't enough to put us on track for two degrees, let alone for one and a half degrees. So Paris prescribed a five yearly cycle where every five years, countries would collectively aim to ratchet up the ambition of these nationally determined contributions. And COP26, which was due to be this year, is the first five-year review when those pledges, those commitments, are meant to be uh, ratcheted up. And obviously, even before uh, coronavirus, there was clearly a, a massive challenge to get global agreement on these things. What are the main political groupings and the main political positions around the COP discussions? So the, the central challenge of, of this COP was always going to be, and still is, how do you raise ambition? The, those, those nationally determined contributions are not negotiated as, as, as the Paris Agreement was negotiated. They're determined in capitals. Right. So if you take the, the Paris Agreement, the US and China announced their commitments more than a year before Paris in the beginning of November 2014. So the big task for the EU, UK as COP president is can it persuade the big players to ratchet up their ambition? Now, if you, if you look at what would be implied by the commitments countries have already made, that they are significant but they leave us very far short of what, of, of what we need to be to, to achieve to be on track for climate goals. So to get from current commitments in 2030 to, to, to a point where we were on track for 1.5 degrees, we would have to halve global emissions from current levels. To be on track even for well below 2 degrees, we would have to reduce them by a quarter. And it, it was already clear, frankly, be, before the virus, that we will not get anything like that degree of ambition collectively. The question is, how much ambition can we get? China matters more than anybody else. China is by far the biggest emitter. So what China does is, is determinant in a way. My guess is the EU will raise its ambition uh, mm -hmm. this year. Of course, for now, the US is out of the game because Mr. Trump has stated his, his intent to withdraw from Paris. So if you can get China to make a significant step, I think that will generate momentum that might enable you to 
to build pressure on other countries to make significant pledges. And I think, you know, the key moment this year was going to be a summit that Merkel had called between the EU and China in Leipzig in September, you know, where I think the EU hoped that they could reach agreement with, the, with China that they would collectively reduce their ambition. Having said all that, even on the most benign scenario, on my back of our envelope calculations, the very maximum, the very top of what is politically, what is realistic but ambitious, would be that we might do an additional six gigatons of effort. And that's in a context where to be on track for 1.5, we need 30 gigatons. And to be on track for two degrees, we need another 15. So even the very best scenario wouldn't get us close to be on track for climate goals. Well, that's a very depressing, although helpfully uh, sets us uh, very much in context. Now the world's gone into lockdown because of coronavirus. COP26, as we know, has been postponed until 2021. How, if at all, has coronavirus affected countries' thinking and their preparations for COP26? The obvious thing to say is that in most countries in the world, coronavirus has pushed almost every issue, every other issue, off, off the political radar. So most countries are focusing you know, nearly, nearly 100% on the virus. And uh, so uh, the COP has been deferred for sort of public health reasons. But actually, it's a good thing because, you know, it's, yeah. the countries are not, are not focused on it. A lot of the energy of the climate community is starting to be focused on the process whereby countries come out of the virus. So countries have spent a lot of money on health systems, on propping up incomes and companies and so on. But there's an expectation that we will need some kind of further fiscal stimulus to sure. get economies moving again. And there's a lot of attention being focused on can we make, can we make those fiscal stimulus packages climate smart? So that's the first major challenge. I think if we can do that, I think that will stand us in very good stead as we go into next year. The COP hasn't been refixed. My guess it will be at the end of 2021. I think then we can begin to ratchet up um, the politics again towards setting these targets for, for a deferred COP in 2021. And do you think that the pandemic and the lockdown has changed public opinion? on the environment, which could actually help or hinder or make no difference to the way that governments set these fiscal stimuluses coming out of, coming out of the lockdown? Very, very hard to say. I mean, clearly there's a lot of speculation that you know, people will, will have understood the benefits of having clean air with so much fewer cars around mm. at the moment. Speculation that, and I think there's some substance in this, that We'll see some behavioural changes. You know, you can do a lot of meetings by Zoom, for example, a bit less travel. So I do think there'll be some 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 impact there. On the other hand, there've been some fairly adverse geopolitical tendencies, rising tensions between the US and China, and actually to some degree between Europe and China. I think coronavirus has has rather fed that dynamic. Yeah. So. Um, so, so, so it's hard to say. I, I hope that as a world, the lesson we all draw from this is that actually it's right to spend a bit of time preparing for risks, particularly yes. risks like climate change, which you know are coming. Yeah. 
No, for sure. And I guess overall the question then, has the pandemic happening made it easier or harder to get some kind of agreement at COP26? Or, or does it really eventually make no difference except a year's delay? I think, I think it has changed the context significantly. It's hard to say in what direction. So apart from the sort of shift in public perceptions and public priorities, the other big change that's, that's, that's happened as a result of the virus is the COP having been put back means it's now beyond the US presidential election. Yes. So we now have two scenarios. We have a, we have a scenario where Mr. Trump gets a second term where you know we're still in the world where we have to try and build um, some global momentum through e eu china build, building a kind of critical mass yeah which is not impossible but it's hard but then there's an the, we have an alternative scenario where biden wins and biden has stated his intent to convene major emitters in the first six months of next year and i, I think it's clear that you know, Biden will have a very strong climate agenda. Actually, there's a, there's a sort of strong skepticism of, of, about China across the aisle in the US, but you can't solve climate change without China. Yeah. So, you know, one would hope that, you know, EU, China, US could begin to, even in spite of their differences, find a way forward for a collective raising of ambition next year. That would be the benign scenario. I, I do think if you have the US back in the game, that will have a huge pull effect on others too. Japan, Australia, Canada. I think I think you would see much more momentum in the climate agenda globally in, in that scenario. And has the pandemic affected China's view of all of this? Are they looking to, I don't know, take more global leadership in this area? So revealed preference is that China tends to be, in, you know, reluctant to to take visible leadership on on global issues. There's been a lot of hope that China would do so, particularly in Europe. We've just had a Premier Li Keqiang announce the Chinese a Chinese fiscal stimulus package a couple of days ago, rather modest in scale. And if anything, you know, environmental signals rather weak compared to what we might have wanted. A lot of emphasis on jobs, growth. Don't think you mentioned climate or low carbon once. And at the same time, you know, where, where Europe had been looking to sort of forge a new, almost a new alliance to commit to working on supporting multilateralism together, China has doubled down on its on, on its pressure on Hong Kong in this period. So I think it's unrealistic to think that China is going to be, you know, very forward leaning on climate. But I, I do think there are arguments that resonate with China and we should continue to to deploy those arguments and work with China to try and encourage them in, in the right direction. And just to be clear, you, you've set out uh, the position of China, the EU and the US who are either in or out of this process. Those are presumably the three big players and other people to an extent take their lead from some of those or, or are there other groupings that are significant in these discussions? The vulnerable countries have a huge moral weight uh, in this process yeah. and you know I spent many years in these negotiations essentially Europe 
and the, and the big emerging economies compete for their support is, is the reality. I do think that it's important that the UK develops a serious package on resilience and adaptation, for example, to try and, if nothing else, it's, it's the right thing to do, but I think also, but also because it would make it more likely we can try and bring those vulnerable countries' pressure to bear on all the major emitters to raise their ambition. Yeah. Of course, China has great weight in these countries because they're the biggest investor in many of these places. You talked about the UK there, and obviously at COP26, the UK has two roles. It obviously has to negotiate on behalf of its own national interests, but it also has to chair the event. What are the, the key challenges to chairing this kind of event and, and seeking a successful outcome? Well, you certainly need to be to be trusted by all and you know be seen to be neutral. But I, I think in this COP, given it's about raising ambition, there is a particular emphasis on demonstrating visible leadership. Uh, so there's so a clear link between what the UK does nationally and how successful it will be in its leading of the negotiations. Yes, I, I believe so. I, I, th I believe the, the UK will, will need to raise the ambition of its so-called national determined contribution this year. The, end, the UK has to make a new national determined contribution because it's left the EU. So legally, it must do so in any case. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it, it will be expected to raise the ambition of its NDC, which is hard for the UK because its NDC is probably more ambitious than most, but it will need to raise its ambition. I think it will need to demonstrate its leadership on areas like finance as well. And, and it's going to have to be prepared to use its diplomatic weight and capital with the big countries, which won't be easy for us at a time when we've just left the EU and we've got many other priorities. But I'm afraid, you know, if you're the COP president, you need to use your capital accordingly. Yeah, no, understood. Just on a sort of slightly uh, specific issue, this COP26 was designed to be falling just before the end of the five-year periods where current NDCs come to an end. What happens in 2021? Do countries simply stick with the previous ones or are they nonetheless obliged to renew them before the end of 2020? The NDCs are mostly for 2030 with a few for 2025. Right. So it's not like there is a kind of vacuum or a gap. Okay. There is a sort of a dis discussion about whether it you know whether the 2020 deadline for revising them should be adhered to i see that as a formalistic secondary issue for me the key thing is the is the political moment and the political moment has clearly shifted into next year so we need that moment next year when we put pressure on countries to raise their, their 2030 ambition okay and just to to finish and you covered this a little bit earlier but what do you think is the most realistic outcome for COP26? As I said before, I, I think that we won't get all of, the, you know, we won't get NDC increases that will at, already in 2021 put us on track for two degrees or 1.5. But I think we can get in a good scenario, a big, you know, chunk of the way towards it. Alongside that, I think we, the I know the UK is working up a very powerful kind of real economy package mm -hmm. issues like the areas that mark carney has been leading on on in mainstreaming climate risk into investment decision making 
putting together coalitions to uh, commit to phasing out internal combustion engines and bringing in electric cars, uh, coalitions to work together on building resilience into new infrastructure planning and so on. So I think, I think that the combination of those NDC increases and those real economy announcements, if we can put, put some together that's crunchy enough that basically reinforces the signal that is already there to major economic players that climate change is inevitable. And basically we, we further promote this, this, this constant ratcheting of ambition, both in the real economy and in country pledges. I think that is that would be a good outcome. Es- essentially, we the major players in the public and private sector look at the Glasgow outcome and they say, governments are really serious. This is going to happen. I need to continue to, to invest on the basis that we're going to have a, a, a low-carbon economy, not a high-carbon one. Well, let's hope that we do get to that point. But uh, Peter Betts, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kevin. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. All episodes of the podcast and all details about the work of the Foundation are available on our website at www.foundation.org.uk.